Welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I am your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I'm joined by Mr. Paul Mason of Tempest Drums. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, I'm really excited to have you on the show as a very um, respected and uh, just uh, Tempest Drums in the circles of people who've used them and know about them and on the forums when I was doing research. There's not really any bad comments about them. They're very just loved drums. Um, and you've got a bit of a following, which is great. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's just so cool. You could create this brand. Well, I was very fortunate in um, in some respects with uh, with timing and you know, various opportunities that came along. But, uh, but I also I, I think also that uh, the the uniqueness of what I did helped to to push it along in that way. I mean, there was nobody else doing that then, and, and I don't think there is even now. So with any yeah. luck, that helped it to uh, stand out from so many great craftsmen out there, but uh, nobody doing the composite thing in the way that I did it. So Sure, which, you know, we'll talk all about the uniqueness uh of your brand and what, you know, the materials you used and all that stuff. But, um, why don't we step back first and we'll, we'll kind of get into that, um, you know, the carbon fiber and all that with, with, but first maybe start talking about your background and really what, you know, was the origins of Tempest. Okay. Well, I took my first drum lessons in about the middle of February of 1971, having uh, moved here from um, from England via Montreal, finally got into music at that age. Mm. I was I was uh, 13, I think, and uh, finally got a uh, a little drum set for my 14th birthday that that July, uh, much like the one that you had described. You know, no hi hat, just the just the just the very the very bare minimum. You know, yeah, yeah it was good stuff. And that was enough to get me through, uh, you know, three or four years, I suppose, of uh, learning to play and developing, adding bits and pieces to it. But then there was a company in Vancouver uh, that had been formed, I think, in um, sometime in 1973, which was called Milestone Percussion. And it originally was kind of uh, part of a, a drum shop in town here called Drum Village which was mm. co-owned by a, a man named Michael Clapham. So I think the year that I got out of high school, which would have been 1975, um, I went down to Drum Village to try these, 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 these instruments. I'd, I'd, heard, I'd heard quite a few good things about them, and there were, there were quite a few players at the time who uh, were, were kind of getting on board with that i think gary well, i don't know whether you guys know of uh, the band max webster you might well do some of your some mm -hmm. of your uh, more diehard canadian uh, aficionados max webster had a drummer named gary mccracken who was a great player he'd he'd bought himself a set jerry mercer with april wine perhaps a bit better known billy cobham in those days had also uh, uh, had a set built so i went along you know and I, I thought they were just wonderful. So I put down a handful of cash and I had them build me a set. Uh, um, it was the first Canary Yellow set that they'd ever uh, created. And the only reason I went with Canary Yellow is because I'd seen a photograph of Jan Hammer 
playing a canary yellow <laughs> Gretsch set. And I thought, well, that seems nice. Yeah. And so uh, shortly after that, I, I became a, a full-time professional gigging traveling musician at the age of, well, I guess I was 18 at the time. And um, the, it took Milestone because they were so busy. It took them the best part of a year to, uh, to build the set for me, which I finally took delivery of while I was gigging. And I, I played that set, um, you know, added on to it and then played that set basically for, I don't know, the best part of eight or nine years, I think, before I kind of reluctantly had to concede that I was never going to be uh, an internationally renowned rock star. Uh, so I began looking for uh, something else to do, and this would have been 19, 1984. So by which time the milestone percussion operation uh, was for sale. So I went to see Michael Clapham, and uh, we uh, chatted. And eventually I bought the milestone operation. Hmm. Wow. And um, at the time, he wanted uh, quite a lot of money for the, the Milestone brand, the name, um, which I couldn't afford uh, at the time. But also, um, unfortunately, uh, he had managed to uh, damage the name quite badly. He was an unusual man. He had some funny ideas about uh, uh, customer service and... and uh, updating the product and, 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 you know, things that kind of make it uh, more alluring for, for newcomers, you know? So I, yeah. I didn't, um, I didn't buy the milestone name for him, which is why the name Tempus uh, came about. Hmm. And uh, I think it was something that my brother, Dave and I kind of, he's a designer. Uh, well, among other things, um, I think it was a, a name that my brother Dave and I kind of came up with. Tempus, of course, being effectively time. Sure. Right? In Latin. In, right? in Latin, as much as I speak Latin. You know. I Googled it. <laughs> I, I, just, <laughs> that's, that's, I don't know any Latin. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, pre-Google, I might have had a dictionary, but that was about <laughs> it. So. Sure. And so that was, um, that was the... That was the beginnings of Tempest, as it was known in, in, uh, in you know, April 1st, 85 was, uh, was launch date for that officially. And it was then Tempest Instruments Incorporated. And mm. I, I think we went with Tempest Instruments because, it, you know, it sort of seemed as if that offered a few possibilities. If we wanted to go beyond drums, who knew? I mean, it was probably some philosophy. Yeah. What did you acquire? So when you bought Milestone, was he building his own shells? Like, what all equipment did you get besides just uh, the name, which you obviously ended up not using because of the whole, you know, yeah. start fresh yeah. mentality? He, um, the, the, the philosophy behind Milestone always was, and it was, it was, it was, it was the basis for the company was that they built their own shells. Hmm. Um, you know, and we'll get to the, the composition of those shells in, in a little while, I think. But yep. um, it was all done in-house. That every single shell that was ever built was was uh, built in molds that the company owned itself, and which you know. So I acquired those molds, along with the you know the production equipment and the uh, you know the inventory and uh, you know quite a lot of other odds and ends and uh, okay. you know, bits that we later added onto and modified and modernized. You know, so yeah, it was a, it was a self-contained operation. They owned 
they owned uh, their own uh, diecast tooling for uh, the tension casings and the, the uh, bass drum claws. Uh, a lot of hardware, which unfortunately wasn't very uh, reliable, which we we kind of took a pass on as well. But it was a very much a. In fact, I think it might be one of the last, uh, one, perhaps one of the only of the, the small, the, the very small operations to have actually owned that much of its own proprietary uh, hardware, you know, casting uh, casting yeah. equipment for the hardware. They didn't make that themselves. Of course, it takes an immense operation to die cast. But sure. uh, but that was that was part of the philosophy. So pretty admirable oh, stuff, I think, in the early days. Yeah, that's great. I mean, but it's it's. It's cool that you could um, kind of find it and uh, re- re- like reuse it, recycle it into a new brand, yeah, yeah. and uh, not just let it get you know melted down or whatever. Well, that um, was partly, um, you know, that was partly why I wanted to uh, to acquire the operation. I, you know, I, I was such a fan of the drum. And had yeah. been since that first visit to Drum Village. I was just just bowled over by what I heard, and, and I still feel the same way today. I mean, all these years later, you know. Um, and I didn't, I didn't think it was right that um, that these these drums disappear, that this uh, that this company sort of sink into obscurity. And, and and as it turned out, I was the only. I didn't know it at the time, but I was the only person who ever made an offer on the milestone operation. Hmm. Nobody else approached him at all, which I was kind of shocked by later on. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny to learn that later. I'm sure if he was asking for a lot of money and kind of playing hardball, it turns out there was literally no one else interested. <laughs> so. Well, I think it also might have had some. I mean, what I learned um, the further I got into uh, the business um, and the uh, and trying to uh, trying to market the the drums what i learned was that there is a sizable and quite a strong resistance to the unusual mm-hmm. um you know which is not meant to be at all disrespectful to yeah. to anyone else it's just that there is a there's this this global love affair with um with maple shells and, and you know the exotic woods and, and a lot of metals and so on but when you get outside of that uh, you run into this um, this reluctance on the part of uh, you know, most most drummers to even entertain the idea that there's something that else that might work, and so it's not really yeah. surprising to me in the end that that uh, you know I was only ever a, a, you know a very small niche player that kind of this where's Waldo thing going on you know but that was okay <laughs> yeah. with me in the end I mean you know global domination. Sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? Yeah, it does sound like a lot of work. But I mean, you you did some, um, you had some domination, you know, don't sell yourself <laughs> short. So, all right, we're in about 1985, yeah, right? That's yeah. that's about when the, when Tempest started. Exactly, right? yep. Okay, so let's take it from there with, and you said it was you and your brother, correct? Well, my brother wasn't involved in the company, but he was okay. some... Uh, Dave was, uh, he was, he had his own design firm in Vancouver at, at the time. Gotcha. And, uh, so he, um, very generously, uh, uh, conceived and created and put together all of the initial, uh, brochures and the first, mm. uh, first, uh, advertisements and so on. I mean, um, I don't know what I would have done if he hadn't, you know, been there, uh, in, in that sense, because I certainly didn't have those skills. Yeah. And I think that he really did develop a, uh, um, 
And I still I look back on the advertising that we did and the brochures and so on. I think he did an excellent job, and it was very you know it was very uh, uh, it stood out. I think at the time. Yeah, and so he was, a good good logo, good everything. I mean, it's, it's yeah. I mean, people yeah. didn't understand the logo, and uh, you know, I, I I think that was kind of a um, I think that was kind of nice in its own way. I mean, you don't necessarily have to everything be uh, terribly obvious. In in truth, and I explained this some years later, was it was a foreigner album, uh, which had kind of a black cover with this stylized block letter F on the front yeah. of it where the sides i think of the block letter were highlighted with various colors but you didn't actually see the the true f itself and so that's what we were shooting for with that uh yeah. with that logo whereas what some people saw for example was pac-man uh <laughs> for those old enough to remember pac-man and yeah. uh, or else some people saw um uh, mountains because you know we're in vancouver and we have we have okay. mountains. So I thought that was whatever it got to get people, whatever it took to get people talking, I think was probably yeah. a fair game, you know? Yeah, I see the T. I mean, I think it's awesome. Oh. It's kind of that using the shades. And um, I think there's that design thing where it's like they call it like the Qbert square, where it's like it uses shading on the side to make the pyramids for the game. You yeah. Know, for yeah I, think that's, I think that's that's cool. I, I, I had not heard. I mean, I know what Qbert is, but I never thought of it that way until just now. Yeah. So that's uh, that's a nice observation. Thank you. Yeah. We're still cool. talking about it today. The, uh, <laughs> the design. But, OK, <laughs> yeah. so so that's how your brother helped. But um, yeah. now let me before we even go forward, had you built drums before 1985 or did you just kind of say, I'm going to get into this? I'm a drummer. I know drums. Um, that's a really good question. I think um, to go back to my early uh my my half drum set without a hi-hat and um yeah which was uh the brand name was i think bell tone you know one of the mm. one of the big ones or <laughs> yeah. orange or it had once been orange glitter which had faded in the sunlight you you, yeah. you, you remember yeah and so i i had added on to this um some you know there was an affordable line in those days called baxter which i uh, got a couple of floor toms for it and a second bass drum because i'd seen tommy aldridge on tv you know and so, like most of the kids that I knew, at some point or another, I had completely stripped down the drum set, taken all the lugs off, all of the drums, because they were all mismatched, right? They were different finishes, different wraps, what have you. Sure. So we, we, would, we would get really high-tech and, and rewrap an entire drum set with them. Um, there was a product called MacTac, which was basically a, a plastic uh, adhesive-backed sheet, which was designed for uh, kitchen shelves. Mm, yep. But, but it came in black and red, and you know, a couple of other. You know, there was just a, it was just a flat. Uh, you know, there was no gloss to it at all. But it, it made you, it, it made it possible for you to sort of redesign your set in that really primitive way. So I'd done that, mm. and I had two sixteen by sixteen floor toms, and I wanted. I wanted to differentiate the two, so I, I you know, in, in my own clumsy way, I cut two inches off one of them to make it a fourteen deep by sixteen inch floor tom. I mean, it was a, not not what you'd call an accurate job, but so I, <laughs> I had done that sort of modification, you know, as a as a as a fourteen year old or a fifteen year old or whatever. Uh, but that was as far as it really got in terms of um, trying to uh, build or modify. I just kind of knew that that was without the tooling to do it you know it really sure. wasn't wasn't my wasn't more my forte so i just got on with playing them. but the yeah. um the yeah. and when i when i bought the company i had never 
I'd been in the Milestone Factory a few times, but I'd never, I'd never had a look at what they were doing. And so fortunately for me, um, the chap who at that point was doing the actual shell fabrication, a man named Perry Baycroft, great guy. He was still with Milestone in the end, and he came to work for me for about a, well, I think about a year and a half or so when I first took it on. So he taught me the craft, essentially, um, you know, how to, uh, like, you know, from, from, from beginning to end, how to go about doing this, which I had, I'd never messed with those sorts of materials at all. It's quite a, it's quite a learning, uh, quite a learning curve. Um, but then, you know, I, once you've got it down, you can, then you can start to experiment and elaborate and, and, uh, dream up new finishes and, uh, yeah, and, and new combinations of materials, which is kind of where it eventually uh, went, which is what led me to ultimately the four the four primary uh, formulations that uh, that existed in the uh, in the end. Hmm. So, on that note of talking about the different materials and all that kind of stuff, why don't you explain a little bit to people who maybe are not familiar with Tempest? Um, Basically, what made you guys different? What were the materials maybe that you started with um, that were, you know, obviously what you're describing um, in in the 80s? And we'll kind of just keep going with the history from there. Yeah. So let's go back just briefly to the the uh, the origins of uh, milestone percussion and this this drum shop called Drum Village. And next door to Drum Village was a. Uh, a hair salon, and this is relevant. <laughs> <laughs> and the uh, the hair salon was also a, a you know supply store or what have you. But the mm-hmm. the owner of this, the woman who owned the, the store, her husband was a man named John Soprovich, who was a uh, plastics engineer of some kind. I think he'd done development work for NASA and people like that. You know. Wow. Yeah. So he was in the store one day and he, you know, he heard Michael sort of tuning up and whacking away on a, on a snare drum. So he wandered next door to find out what all the, the din was about. And he, and he, they got talking about this, this snare drum, which was one of the early Fibes uh, instruments. And I don't know whether you've uh, much familiarity with the early Fibes stuff. I mean, they were great drums, but the, sure. uh, the, the, the manufacturing process was some, um, uh, and again, meaning no disrespect to Bob Grouso, who I have met, uh, was a little on the primitive side, and the insides, the insides of the shells were um, oftentimes weren't even finished. It was just raw, uh, you know, look, like looking at the underside of a hot tub or something. <laughs> so John Soprovich said to Michael Clapham, "That's all fine and good, but if you were, you know, if you wanted to do it properly, here's how you'd." Here's how you'd go about it. And I still have the original drawings, sketches, notes that they made on on the hair salon stationery mm. where they uh, where they cooked all this up, where John laid it all out, the, uh, the, the methods and, and means of doing this. And so the original milestone drums were all uh, fiberglass, uh, but they were built from the outside in. And so they were, they were built on the inside of cylindrical molds. There's no, there's no secret in this. It's, it's the yeah, same sure. ways that you would build a, you know, literally build a hot tub or a, or a, or a, or a 
boat body or a, or a Corvette or anything else. It's yeah. just a molding process. So the first thing that goes into the mold, and I used to joke with people about this, they would ask how their drums were coming along. I'd say, well, the finish is done, but I haven't put the shell inside it yet. <laughs> and so you loaded up a spray gun with, um, with the, uh, the pigmented or glitter-filled gel that, uh, that you were going to be working with, and you, fired the, you sprayed the, uh, the, the finish into the mold. And then the next morning you would come in and, uh, and lay up, as the, as the terminology has it, you would lay up the fiberglass shell itself with the resins, and mats, and cloths, and what have you. So you were literally working from the outside in. Hmm. And that definitely was uh, unique at the time. And as I said earlier, I don't think there's anybody even doing that now. Uh, it takes quite a lot of equipment to do it, a lot of patience. Sure. But uh, that, that was how the whole thing got started. And those were the drums that, uh, you know, McCracken and Mercer and whoever else uh, had bought and which inspired me. And that's why one of the reasons why I bought the company. It was one of the, because, they, because the sound the drums produced was unlike anything else that was really possible because of the uniqueness of the approach and the materials involved. Hmm. So the, all of the, the first five or six years of... Uh, Tempest instruments, or what became Tempest drums, I, I stuck to the fiberglass uh, formula, and you know, and that was what we uh, that was what we uh, that was what we pushed, and that's what people liked. Now there was a bit of a hiatus where in 19, uh, 19 by nineteen ninety two, I had you know, we had had a bit of a recession. Well, more than a bit of a recession, and I'd gotten pretty badly clobbered financially, and I, I really mm -hmm. had to, uh, I had to collapse it, put it all in storage, and uh, go on to uh, other things. Not really having a plan for um, continuing with it because I, I, I don't know that I felt that I could at the time. So all of this gear went into storage, and from ninety two, I think, till maybe late ninety four, I didn't produce anything. And through circumstances, which uh, perhaps I'll uh, uh, explain uh, shortly, I was able to put the business back on its feet, largely, I think, due to the existence by then of the internet, which mm -hmm. had a profound effect on every aspect of my business, you know, being that size, along with so sure. many others. You know. Life in general. Oh, my. It was... It was uh, I didn't even understand it at the time. I really didn't. Um, I had gone back to school. I was I was uh, working on a big. I was you know at thirty four, thirty five at the time. I finally got around to going back to uh, school, do some post secondary. I was working on a degree in uh, music therapy. But um, you know, I also had uh, uh, family. I had uh, three small children and you know, mortgage and you know real life considerations. Yep. So I was yeah, also I having to. Uh, find a way to uh, support myself in 1993 I uh, went to work for a company I, for, for about 20 years I, I managed a um, a group home for three developmentally challenged uh, adult men hmm. which That's was, great. Uh, yeah that too had a, a, had a profound effect on my life and I got into that because of music I mean essentially everything I've done has been centered around music in one form or another for better or for worse. Sure. And, yep. uh, the group home gig eventually led me into work as what used to be known as an SEA, special education assistant. I worked with kids with uh, a variety of learning and developmental disabilities in our local 
school system, which I uh, finally uh, uh, I finally uh, quit that gig uh, just uh, three months ago, actually. So, oh, wow. so we got sidetracked a bit there. But by 1990, yeah. 1994, 95-ish, I, I'm a bit foggy on it now. I was able to put Tempest uh, kind of back into back into operation, and now because uh, you know advertising expenses were basically zero because of the the internet and uh, word of mouth advertising, which you and I were chatting about earlier on, and how incredibly effective that is. Chat rooms and forums, and all I really needed to do was um, chime in now and again and, and, uh, and offer some information and perhaps a few corrections to people who were already talking about me behind my back anyway. Well, you got to create a good product, which you've done. I like you to think f- so. Yeah. Focus on, as opposed to shouting from, you know, a rooftop saying my drums are great. Yeah. It's so it's slower. Yeah. The word of mouth, but it's 10 times as beneficial as, as, as a lot of, uh, yeah self-promotion i think ultimately i agree with you completely and i sort of you know as i went along i i I sort of had to learn how to uh to to use the power of that to my advantage you know i mean obviously i was a businessman you have to uh you know you have to learn these strategies as you go and it was all new stuff because the the internet was new stuff it was it was it had never been possible before just to let people to let people run with it and on a you know ultimately on a on a kind of a global basis, you know, yeah. which was incredibly powerful and quite surprising in its, uh, in its reach. So um, by 95, 96, I think, and I don't quite know where the idea came from, maybe because I was visiting my supplier one day and they had rolls of carbon fiber, which I'd never really thought about before. I knew what it was, you know, they used it for, hockey sticks and space shuttles i think but um, but it turns out that it um it works very well in a drum shell the way i was doing it back then what it allowed for was a um, because it's got greater tensile strength than 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 fiberglass alone uh, it allowed for a thinner shell Hmm. so whereas the milestone shells were um i guess maybe a little over an eighth of an inch thick and didn't need any reinforcing ring which again was something unique, uh, you know, unless you were dealing with a metal shell, you, the shells didn't have that kind of structural, yeah. uh, you know, they'd collapse you know? just by nature. Yeah, exactly. They just couldn't, couldn't handle the, the tensions of the heads, especially snare drums. So the milestone shell, again, you know, completely uh, unique in that way. And, and for me to be able to offer a shell, which was thinner with the benefit being that basic, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm no, acoustics engineer you, you probably know an infinite infinite infinitely more than i do about this but the thinner the shell essentially the lower the fundamental pitch yeah so if you can build a shell thinner than an eighth of an inch maybe maybe shave you know 20 25 off that then you've created a, a, a again another different sounding instrument and so later on we i kind of took that i keep saying we which is a bit um it's it's a bit like the royal we because I, I, it's you though I, I, well it's but just a habit you know it, i'm the same way though where i don't personally want to like point my finger and take credit for anything which i think even with the podcast i say we but it's literally <laughs> it's only me um but I, I get that i think that's that points to you being a uh down-to-earth guy where it's like 
I get what you mean. It makes it also makes you seem bigger. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of it. I mean, I honestly, yeah. in all of 20, what did I do it for? About 28 years. I think in all that time, I actually had employees, including Perry Baycroft for that first year and a half. I think I had employees for about three years. Okay. Outside of that, I did absolutely all of it myself. And that totaled in the end, my tenure, that was almost seven, that was almost 7,500 instruments. Wow. Which is um, a fair amount of output for, for an operation that size, I think. But Yeah, with, with one person. Let, let me ask you, too. So when I think carbon fiber, I think, um, I think now modern days, you, it's, it's, they use it a lot in like cars and certain yep. parts to be lighter. And it's a really expensive material, isn't it? Uh, it is, yeah. Um, you know, carbon fiber bike frames and things like that tend exactly. to be quite expensive. There are different, there are different weights of, as there are with fiberglass uh, and a lot of other materials. There are different weights of and uh, of of carbon fiber, and you can buy it as cloth. You can buy it as uh, what's called unidirectional. I think they still call it that. There's, there's, you know, it, you can buy the extremely heavy stuff, which is more likely to be used if you're building planes for Boeing than, mm -hmm. you know, just different, different needs. But the amount of fiberglass, uh, the amount of carbon fiber, I'm sorry, that I needed for the average drum meant that it didn't disproportionately or unaffordably drive up the cost. So the carbon fiber shells, the way I was dealing with it, um, really were only, I think, about 20%, 25% more expensive than their fiberglass equivalent. Hmm. And so later on, when I, uh, again, probably visiting that same supplier, and now they had a roll of carbon Kevlar, which I had known of but hadn't thought about using uh, because it's actually quite difficult to work with. So I tried that too. And again, that made for the possibility of an even thinner shell uh, and again, with a with a with a different set of uh, sound, uh, sort of acoustic and sound properties. So that that was fascinating as well. And, uh, and then the, the last addition to all of that was uh, uh, the fourth line, if you like, was hemp. Yeah, which is um, uh, which is really uh, just an easy, easy material to work with in, in the way that I was working with. It was very, very enjoyable. But this uh, again, it was all in pursuit of you know, what can we create in the way of new sounds here? It's, um, it wasn't just to be clever or try and be different. It was ultimately the goal was yeah. to create something which sounded good. And not, not like, I'm glad you said it. Cause, cause on the surface, someone would say, Oh, a hemp drum. Yeah. What a gimmick. Yeah. But I don't get the feeling at all that that's what you were after. But no. so with these materials and, and I know, well, I guess virtually nothing about carbon fiber, carbon um, Kevlar, like maybe talk a little bit about how you take, I know you said there's different thicknesses and stuff, but like just in general, like how do you take this like carbon fiber, if it was like a fabric and make it into a rigid drum? I mean, are you wrapping it around a form and then spraying it with like a hardening agent i mean i don't i don't i think a lot of people probably don't know anything how, how do you make this into a drum it's a t it's a secret if i told you i'd have to <laughs> come and visit you and you'd have to you'd have to pour me a glass of scotch um yeah. it's um I, as i mentioned it we you know, all built on the inside of uh, 
so uh-huh. cylindrical molds, right? So you spray okay. you spray in the finish. Got it. That would generally be done at the end of the day because then it's got overnight to cure. Sure. And then the next morning, what you're actually doing is you're is you're taking fiberglass mat, which is a a, a fairly heavy. Uh, well, well, again, you know, different weights and gauges and so on. Uh, mat, uh, which you cut to lengths and widths and fiberglass cloth or carbon fiber cloth or carbon Kevlar or hemp. And you cut these materials to the lengths that you need to encircle the inside of the mold. So that's your, that's your first step. And then what's actually, what's actually um, supporting or suspending these materials is a resin. Hmm. Okay. In my case, I, uh, uh, not epoxy resins, which are quite difficult to work with, but uh, isothalic resins. So this is a catalyzed, basically it's a liquid plastic, and you add a catalyst, a hardener. And you can pigment it, for example, all, the early, uh, all of the early Tempest drums were black on the inside because it seemed sort of visually agreeable yeah. and, and you know sleek yeah and it's set nicely against the external finishes you know but it turns out that you can also um you can you can pigment your resin any number of other colors sort of to match the outside if you're dealing with a solid white or a solid blue or a red or something you can pigment the resin that way which some people really like and it also turns out that if you add the same uh glitter flakes that you're using in your finish to the resin you can create something very, very close to the external glitter finish running cool. through the shell. So in some ways, the finish could conceivably be said to run right the way through the shell, which, again, doesn't necessarily help the sound in any way, that I, well, not that my ear could detect, but just yeah. a, perhaps an unusual feature. Not many companies can say that. So Yeah, which that's, you know, we're, we're visual people we are drummers, yeah. and we we like our glitters and our finishes and our taking the head off and looking at it and yep. um, and part of the beauty of it for me being that everything was was built to order i, I very rarely built anything that hadn't already been specified by a customer what that did was that meant that um when the customer reached out to me email or phone call or whatever and we were discussing what they wanted to see in, in, in the finished product. It meant that there were so many different possible uh, approaches that could be taken to getting it exactly the way they wanted it. You know, do you want the finish to go through the shell? How do you want it done? Do you want, you know, all of these different options that, that um, might for some have been a bit confusing because, you know, obviously most people are not accustomed to being able to have that much say into what's being made for them. Yeah. But for me, it was, it was, well, it, you know, do you want it white on the inside? Do you want it black, blue? Do you want it to glitter on the inside? You know, do you want it, mm. do you want it to be sort of translucent? Do you want it to be opaque? Um, and again, I think that perhaps that became um, novel and unappealing in, in, uh, in, in, in the eyes of the, you know, the people who were my biggest fans, you know? Yeah, but you didn't sacrifice quality for a gimmick is is everything that I've understood from reading about it and, yeah. and kind of looking back is is it's still it wasn't like oh there's those gimmicky oh he glitters on the inside of the drum <laughs> big <laughs> big whoop it was still it was just like bare minimum it sounds good yeah. and then on top of that you had some really cool um features yeah i think that sums it up well i mean to me the only thing that mattered was the um 
the sound. What are we, you know, what are we creating here? And, you know, somebody's going to take this, this instrument into a studio or out into a live situation, or even if they're just playing it in their, their home music room, you know, it, the goal was to give them something which was, I thought, which is why I bought the, you know, the, the company and why I'd originally had a set built, which I thought was special. Yeah. And which I thought was, um, was uh, important. And in the end, that's that yeah. really ultimately beyond all the rest of it was the only thing that, that mattered. This episode is brought to you by Dream Symbols. I want to talk a little bit about the Dream Symbols Recycling Program. The recycling program is simple. Bring your broken or unwanted symbols, all brands accepted, into your local Dream Dealer, and you can earn $1 for every inch of symbol you bring in towards the purchase of a new Dream Symbol. For example, bring in two 20-inch symbols for recycling and receive $40 off the price of a new Dream Symbol. It's that easy. They, in turn, take the symbols recycled and use them to create new products like the ReFX Crop Circles and the Naughty Saucers. Check them out online at dreamsymbols.com and follow them on social media at dreamsymbols. While we're on construction and stuff, let's talk about the hemp for a little bit because obviously just from a uh, social you know, standpoint in the world of it, it being kind of a, I don't know, it's less now, but like in the nineties, I guess, I mean, it's, it's sort of taboo. I know that hemp is, we, we all know that hemp is different from, you know, like the, the marijuana that you smoke. <laughs> yeah. It's more of like the, the rope and the fiber and the paper and stuff. Yeah. What was that process like of getting the hemp, creating it, working with it, public reaction to it, all, all that stuff? Well, uh, yeah, all good questions. First of all, it turned out that hemp as a, as, a, as, a, as a raw material in various weights of cloth and so on is easily and readily available from quite a few suppliers. Because it's used so much now in, uh, as, a, as a textile and clothing manufacture and so on, there's an enormous market for the stuff. And so I was able simply to, I can't remember the name of the, uh, the supplier now, I'm sorry, but they were, they were so easy to deal with. And I explained what I was looking for. And, the, you know, the, obviously the quantities that I was going to be buying were not going to be, you know, four or five rolls of this stuff at a time. And they couldn't have mm -hmm. been more supportive. They, they, they just got such a kick out of the idea that I was doing this. <laughs> yeah. um, so it was, it was not, tracking it down was not, was not difficult and in, in and of itself it's not it, it's not an it, it's not an expensive material so the hemp shells that i built were in the, the same price point as the fiberglass shells which was nice too um the that what i will add at this point just just briefly is that um one of the most common questions i used to get especially when there were the four lines was you know how would i describe the the relative sound properties mm -hmm. of the four lines yeah. are very, very logical. And how does that relate to, for example, um, other products that are out there? And so what I used to tell people was that um, the basic fiberglass shell to my ear, everybody hears these things differently, but to my ear, it sounded like the missing link between a high-end wood and a high-end metal shell. Hmm. In other words, it still had all of the, you know, what I would think of as the most desirable qualities of a wood shell, the warmth and the, you know, all of those qualities, but it had the, the sort of the articulation and the, uh, the, the clarity, I suppose, of, uh, of what I associate with metal. You know, I've got an old acrylite downstairs, which I, is, I love it. I love yeah. it. I, it's not something I would play live for one thing. It's the wrong size for me, but 
but as a sound. And I think that goes back to, uh, um, you know, one of my, my earliest uh, inspirations was uh, Clive Bunker with, uh, with Jethro Tull, who I think in truth is probably the reason I became a drummer in the first place. Uh, and he, yeah, he, played a, he played an acrylite for many, many years. Um, and yet I didn't want to play metal drums uh, because they were just too, I think they were just too hard edged for me. I, I own a few, but I don't use them. And I also, I had played a lot of wood drums too. And, and, um, and again, meaning no disrespect to any of these incredible manufacturers out there, it just didn't quite fire me up the way I, the way I wanted it to. Um, and so when I first heard the milestone drums, that was kind of it. And, and still is. I, I rarely play on anything other than drums that I've built. So, um, so the, the, the tracking down of the material was, was not a, a difficult proposition. The, the end result was that as you went from um, fiberglass to carbon fiber to carbon Kevlar to hemp, you kind of moved from that, that missing link point that I kind of uh, uh, created, I suppose, as a starting point. You, sure. you moved slowly further towards the wood end of the, the spectrum, I think. With hemp with, being more with, of with, the wood. with hemp being the most wood-like of the four lines that I that I created. Now again, gotcha. I mean, we're, we're we're talking about sound, which is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it, you know. it's all <laughs> people perceive it differently. Yeah, people perceive it differently. Actually, one of the one of the really interesting things that we we did here's that we again. Here's that that mythical <laughs> the royal we. <laughs> yeah, we were so amused. A, a, a buddy of mine um, suggested that. That a, like a like a taste test, you know the old, yeah, Coke, Pepsi, Tab, or whatever it was. Yeah. So at one point there were two identical five by fourteen snare drum uh, shells, one in black fiberglass and the other in a black wrap. It was a wood shell, and there were two identical, I think perhaps nine by thirteen shells. Again, identical black. One of them was fiberglass. One of them was wood, and trot these things out to trade shows and, and kind of have them in the front of the booth and let people try them out because there would, you know, various opinions about, you know, whether fiberglass was too harsh or, or, you know, you know, p people's kind of preconceived notions about, about what they were, they might be getting into. And what was fascinating about this, this, the, you know, the Tempest taste test, as people started calling it was that, <laughs> They would try out these drums. It tuned identically, the same heads, uh, you know, same same wires, same throw-offs, all of it. I would say probably probably 65-70% of the time, the ones that they decided were the warmest, the best sounding, were not the wood shells. Hmm, interesting. Um, and it was nothing to do with me. There weren't any badges on it. There was no, you know, the same yeah. lugs all around. But let them decide with their with their own ears, you know. And so I thought that was quite enlightening, and it, for for, yeah. for me, but certainly for for those who came along and had a bash, you know. Yeah, and maybe maybe there's something to it of like your brain is like, uh, I've heard this type of wood snare so many times that you're you're drawn to something that's a little different. Which I'm sure they're all. I'm sure they all sounded great. Yeah. Every drum that was tested, oh, yeah. I'm sure is, is, is nice and, and sounds good, but, but still you're kind of like, Ooh, that's different. I like that one. Well, um, you know, and I, I think being different is perhaps exactly the point. I mean, 
yeah. Mr. Estrada, who we, we spoke of earlier, who, who I think connected you and me. Yes. Um, and I don't know how big his collection is, but I, I think it's something along the lines of about 10 Tempest drum sets and something remarkable, like, like 30 snare drums, you know, and and he's got snare drums of all different sizes and, and compositions and different depths and what have you. Yeah. Which shout out to him, Mr. Rodell rude Estrada goes by rude, which is just a cool, yeah, (laughs) it's just a cool, cool. uh, nickname there. Um, thank you to rude for connecting us and coming up with this idea. And this came together very fast because Paul is just on it and very, uh, friendly and easy to work with. So thank you to rude. But, um, but yeah, that's that's quite the collection he's got. There. It is, but th- I mean, it's you know, and I mean, he perhaps is uh, a bit more of a uh, an uh, aficionado, shall we say, than most. But what I find sure. is that my drums, for example, will be part of pretty diverse arsenals, um, where you've got a lot of metals and a lot of woods and a lot of different brands and a lot of maybe even acrylics and things like that. And you know, and especially among uh, players who. Uh, work a lot in different settings or wind up in studios in different settings. For example, um, uh, you're probably familiar with Dave Maddox, a, p- a pal of mine, and he has a he generally keeps a collection of about a hundred snare drums because you need a hundred snare drums. Obviously it's, it's, it's yeah. the law. I mean, we don't, make, minimum. we don't make the laws. We just, <laughs> yeah. but Dave had me build him a couple of shells oh, quite a while ago now, one in carbon fiber and one in, uh, in, uh, fiberglass and but they were part of you know he might turn up at a studio session with with 10 drums in tow and they would all be radically different from one another just in case he needed or perhaps specifically because he knew that he needed something which only one of them did so i never did tout my work as being uh better only that it was unique that it was different that there was nothing else like it because it makes no sense to try and say that a tempest drum is better than a sonar drum or Mm -hmm. a tom it's an absurd concept you know yeah and so i was always perfectly happy to know that whatever i was creating was going out there and 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 being part of uh, a a really cool collection in, in so many cases you know yeah yeah, because those other guys, you're great. I just and you got a great attitude about all of it. Of there's it's it's uh there's not there doesn't need to be competition. There's room for all of these people. Like oh, yeah. if there was just one or two brands, what's the fun in that? I mean, yeah. and we're all we love to collect. We love to buy drums. Oh, we yeah. we love to try different things. Yeah. So you know, as long as you make a good product, then then it's um it's great. So. Then how did how did the last part of my question? How did, was it publicly received? Did people kind of uh, did it take a little bit of like pushing and the and the the taste test and the the trying to get people to kind of uh, warm up to a hemp drum or how do you think the the public reaction was? Um, oddly enough, I don't think it was much of a push at all. Um, I think that it was people were so intrigued by it. Um, and of course there was, you know, there was a lot of joking, the connotation, uh, connected with, uh, with, uh, you know, the, the smokable, but, um, yeah. of course they're, they're radically different, uh, they're radically different materials. They have no, the, 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 there are no similar uh, physical properties of any, dis, of any description. 
and there was a uh, uh, somebody came up with the idea at one point that uh, we should build a uh, we should build a uh, five five. How long is it going to take me to break that? <laughs> Just out? go with it. Just go with it. <laughs> we built a five. I think it was a five by ten inch hemp snare drum, which for a very short while was called the BC Buddy, which uh, as a reference to uh, uh, a certain. Uh, local uh, product line that is popular throughout uh, north america <laughs> that's funny so yeah. and uh, we toyed with the idea of sending them out in a big baggie with a twinkie <laughs> inside but yeah. I, I don't think it ever got to that but the the, the reception was um uh, there was i don't think there was ever any hesitance on the part of somebody who who caught them into it and i think that you know this goes back to uh the uh the kind of customer that uh, I was incredibly fortunate to have. Um, you know, I was going to say earlier on when you've got this, this. Um, I, I, I suppose we'd have to call it a, a bias of sorts towards wood, right? I mean, mm-hmm. ninety percent, ninety percent of the drums in the world even now are made out of various forms of wood. A lot of maple yeah. things still. Um, but you know, Alan Holdsworth used to have this this wonderful expression: uh, people often listen with their eyes. Sure. Um, kind of stole that from him. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's true and it's not meant to be, um, you know, I'm not meant to be dismissive in any way, but, um, the, the kind of drummer who would end up coming to me had probably already been through a lot of other options and was looking for something alternative and, and looking for something that stood out. And so they were perhaps in some ways um, a little more open-mindedness there than um, somebody who simply was going to buy, for example, Pearl just because, um, you know, so-and-so played Pearl. And, and again, that's the endorser. Uh, that's the power of endorsement, and it works. And, it's, and, and I don't mean to dis- disrespect that. But, um, I mean, I tried this in the early days with, um, uh, you know, because Tempest never really had uh, – we had some, some – a, a small number of, of, of prominent players who 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 played the drums and still do, I think, in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. which was incredibly uh, generous and supportive of them. Again, yeah. o- only because of you know what they heard. But yeah. I, I thought that what we would do in the in about the third year is introduce something called uh, Tempest Two, which was quite frankly an attempt to build a another line with less, much less expensive hardware and um, foregoing the, uh, the inner uh, cosmetic layer on the shell and, and, mm-hmm. and cutting a few other costs. It was an attempt to try and reach the market that might have been um, kind of the mid-range products that Tama and Pearl were putting out. I think it might have been yeah. Tama Rockstar, things like that. You know? Sure. The, the, maybe not the first drum set, with no hi hat, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, not but, that one. I mean, the Pearl Export set, which had been uh, was already, I think, in in place by the time I bought the Milestone Company in eighty five, yeah. and it was just incredibly successful. It it, sure. it, it upended the industry, um, perhaps detrimentally. I think you know. Sometimes I look back on it, and I think these um, these entry level sets uh, were so affordable that um, they kind of hampered the same manufacturer's ability to sell its high-end products 
Yeah, but the other side of that is, is it got people into the drums who maybe five years later would have bought your drums? Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. It's sort of a, yeah. a a necessary, I don't want to say a necessary evil, because I know everyone listening to this is like, I had a Pearl Export. Yeah. But, so. um, I see, that's interesting, though, to hear that from your perspective as a manufacturer saying, okay, well, people, it diluted it a little bit yes. to then make it, oh, I can buy a cheaper drum set that sounds good, put some nice heads on it, it'll be great. Yeah. But... It also, those people then need to, they're going to grow out of it yeah. and then buy nicer drums. So and, it's sort of. And let's face it. I mean, yeah. you, you can buy a set of drums even now for four or $500 complete with hardware and all the rest of it. And it's and yeah. quite, and honestly, when you walk around the NAMM show or the Frankfurt Music Mess, you know, you look at these products and they're actually gorgeous. Oh, of course. And they're especially yeah, more, it, more now than ever. Oh yeah. I mean, they're, they're just beautifully finished, but then you know, you, you're still getting what you pay for in terms of materials quality and thus the sound that you're creating. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. you know, there's, there, uh, there's, you know, there's room for us all really in, uh, in that, in that kind of hi hierarchy in that terms of marketplace, but the Tempest two line, I think I set out to, uh, uh there, I've stopped saying we, I think I set out to build, uh, <laughs> I think I, I set out to build a hundred sets. Okay. Of, uh, uh, generally either five-piece sets or five-piece sets with a couple of add-on drums. And um, as luck would have it, uh, we have a national uh, uh, music store chain up here called Long & McQuaid. Brilliant, brilliant operation. Um, and they were tremendously supportive of and sold an enormous amount of, of Tempest product in the early days. In fact, the Vancouver store routinely for the first couple of years that I was in operation, Tempest outsold Pearl Export. Oh, nice. Which uh, I still find quite remarkable. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you know, unbelievable. Unbelievable, really. But the Tempest 2 kits, I mean, I, I sold all, all 100 or so sets. You know, there's none of them left now. And you, did you, so, so before, all right, Tempest 1. Tempest 1, te yeah, regular Tempest. <laughs> you made those those were custom order kits. Yes. Pretty all of them. All of them. Now, the second batch, Tempest 2, was you made standard sizes. Those were like your yeah. uh, and then and then you distributed those to music stores. That's right. right. Yeah. And okay, also, gotcha. you know, there was a lot of sales to direct sales to end users because we didn't sure. we didn't oh we are we are back. We, there was not a there was not a, an enormous uh, retail uh, network, so you know you sold okay. it sold it any way you could. But Long and McQuaid decided this is brilliant. This could go straight into our rental program. Mm. I, I I don't know how many of the Tempest two sets Long and McQuaid bought, but they all went into rentals for about four or five years. After which they were sold to customers who still have them. So this, this kind of slightly lower budget drum set that was built as an experiment is still out there. People are still playing them. What are we now, 30 some odd years later? Wow. And so uh, that, was, that was quite extraordinary too. But what I learned, and I had hoped that this, this mid-level product would entice more interest in the high-level product, but here's the thing, you know, it, it didn't quite work because, um, in point of fact, the the in, the the kind of endorsement profile, that sort of marketing strength that the bigger companies had, which would make it possible, I thought, for them to to sell the various lines that they had. I, I didn't have that. 
And so it, yeah. you know, it was a, it was a, it was a wonderful experiment. I, I no regrets that it was done at all. And I'm still proud of the fact that those kits are, they've oh, lasted wow. this long. I mean, well, what, what were they? So you might've said this, but what was the material used for Tempest two? Was it just fiberglass? Yeah, it was the same essential shell as the high end product, but you know, left out the pigment and the resin Got on it. the inside. That's and right. Okay. Didn't, didn't use the, the fiberglass for the finishing cloth on the inside. And I brought in, um, a, a, an imported line of uh, assortment of hardware legs and other other you know gen- generic lugs and so on, which you can buy even now from uh, from manufacturers in Taipei. You know, it's it's extremely well made stuff, obviously. Yeah. But that was that made it possible for me to sell these kits at about half of what the high end gear would go for. Sure. Wow. So a great experiment, but not not as successful in the way that I had perhaps hoped yeah. it would be. So you know, to, to be the next pearl export yeah. or something like that so which, live and learn right yeah but that's that's a good good uh attitude that um that you had so all right i want to go push forward towards the i mean this is this is one of those episodes where you blink and time is just flying by <laughs> um where it's going fast but what i want to ask though is so i want to get towards the end of the company um which which as we'll we'll learn never really fully it just sort of dissolved a little bit from what i've understood yeah but let's talk about you said there were some big players playing the drums throughout those, you know, that almost 30 years. Um, what, who were some of those players, some of those big name players that we might know about who were using Tempest drums? If we think of the big names, the household names, the Tommy Aldridge's, people of that stature, um, a lot of these guys I did, I did build drums for. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes because I offered them the drums in the hopes of, uh, interesting them, uh, sometimes just because I wanted to thank them somehow for being such an inspiration to me. Sure. Cool. Um, so there were, you know, quite a few of the, the, uh, the, those guys who, um, I would have built instruments for, but who didn't actually play the drums. But so we, we, now we're looking at, um, Guys like Manny Elias with Tears for Fears, who was the first one to phone me when they were they were coming through Vancouver, I think in probably the eighty five, early eighty six or something on the uh, yeah songs from the Big Chair tour and and uh, prime time yeah I mean it was brilliant I mean I, I had been a fan of the band since the first album so to get this phone call from from Manny's drum tech um, that that was my first that was my first uh, real connection to somebody of, of that stature and Manny's got, I think he lives in England. He's, he's still got, I think all four of the sets that he got from me and a bunch of snare drums still takes them out, you know, as, and when he can, whenever he's doing sessions, not touring so much these days, but mm-hmm. Gordy Knutson, who's been, uh, you know, he was an on-call session player at uh, Paisley park in uh, Minneapolis and has been with Steve Miller for uh, a long, long time. You know, Gordy's had, I think five sets built uh, wow. by me. And uh, just, a, a, you know, couldn't have been more supportive, uh, truly. Guys like that. So not the household names, but the, the guys that I think of more as being kind yeah. of the, almost not behind the scenes either, but in that really, in I the trenches working, yeah. you know, a lot of studio players. I mentioned Dave Maddox and, and, uh, you, yep. know, and uh, you know, never, he, he, he wanted the two snare drums because that's really, a, that's really a, 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 an enthusiasm of his, his snare drums. Well, just you saying enthusiasm, I was just about to say uh, these guys are enthusiasts oh, or yeah. they're interested in 
just trying different things. And the, the, the cool thing is, is it sounds like they all ordered multiple, like they liked it and then they came back. Oh, yeah. So that's, that speaks a lot to that. So that's, that's a great answer. Yeah, um, I, I used to joke in the, in the end that the, you know, the first one probably should have been free because <laughs> the number of guys who came back for one or two or three or five or, you know, in, in Mr. Estrada's case, Lord knows how many 30 or something. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, but That's he's awesome. he's not alone. There's a man in uh, there's a man named uh, Steve Hollingworth in in Ottawa who not a lot of people know about him, but he's he's been incredibly busy and incredibly successful as a as a session player. I think he's got eleven drum sets all under the milestone name. And wow, you know, and it's it's you know it's his his one of them is about the uh, you know he kind of decided to build himself sort of a. An, an SS Bozio uh, rig, which uh, is, I don't think it ever leaves his house. I've, I've been to his house and tried to play this thing. It's colossal. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, those are too big it, to take to again. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't like take that. that down to the local pub, really, do you? So. No. Man, that's awesome. Okay, well, so why don't you bring it on home here? Yeah. What, what made you decide um, that to kind of throw in the towel on manufacturing drums, you had a great run. Um, and, and like I said, very well respected. Um, what happened towards the end? Um, I think to simplify it, I, I think I was tired. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about that span of 85 to 2012, when I finally made this, this decision very, very reluctantly, I might add, was not an easy thing to decide but if you think about the you know the you imagine the ups and downs and the the uh, the battles fought and, and occasionally uh, triumphs throughout that time and you know small operation working alone uh it's exhausting yeah um, it is and uh there, there were i think three kind of recessionary periods economic recessions the last one that 2007 2008 when kind of the, the global fiasco that took place. And, you know, my, my, you know, I knew it would, but my business kind of sort of dropped by 50% overnight. There was nothing I could do to, to stop that. I expected it. I was kind of prepared for it. Now, fortunately for me over the, the coming few years, uh, I was able to bounce back at, you know, 15 to 18% a year, which was well above the industry kind of average at that point the joke in those days was that flat is the new up in terms of growth (laughs) not down not down but yeah flat is the new up so yeah people were you know the companies were suffering people were not really buying gear so for me to rebound as i did uh, you know small increments on on uh, fairly small modest sales figures nonetheless but um but it just got to the point where I, i knew by early early 2012 that I, I had had enough. I really, I really had had enough. And, um, and I, I truly, uh, in, in, in the, in the literal sense of the word, I agonized over the decision for a couple of months. It's tough. And it's your baby. It, it is. And it's, uh, you know, you fought so hard for it, but it, it had been, uh, you know, I was, I was very proud. I still am very proud of, of, uh, what we, I, whoever accomplished, um, but I just couldn't do it anymore. Uh, you know, it, it was time to uh, to stop and uh, and try to live life for a while without that. And um, you know, uh, my my none of my family, you know, my wife, my kids, none of them had ever known me without that presence. And, yeah, you know, and, uh, that's interesting. 
puts you through a lot of, uh, you know, you do a lot of growing. In that. So I was 28 when I started the company. It's pretty young. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, the decision was made that, uh, that this was going to be it. And I, I think if I remember, which might or might not be accurate, but I think it was uh, March of 2012 when I decided to make the announcement. I didn't want to make the announcement on the anniversary of the company starting, which was April 1st, because I didn't necessarily think people would take it seriously. Yeah, that's the April Fool's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, gotcha. Yeah, I, exactly. I'm not a fan of April Fool's anyway. So I made the announcement, I think, in March. Um, and ironically, I think it was, uh, I have this memory that it was about the same time that Davy Jones passed away. So hmm. I think I got kind of lost in the shuffle there <laughs> anyway. I was a, yeah, you got bumped to the second page I of the newspaper. <laughs> I was a huge, and I still am a huge fan of the monkeys. So Absolutely. Um, so I made this decision, and, and I remember sitting in the office on that morning and, and having put together this, uh, this memo for my mailing list, and I remember uh, you know, pushing send and uh, how heavy an experience that was. It really it, – uh, it, it floored me to be honest with you, the, uh, the weight of it, but I, I had to do it. I, you know, yeah. I just had to do it. And I put a, I think I put something like a, a six month time limit on new orders with the mm. prospect of, you know, anybody who still wanted something would then have time to, uh, to acquire it. And then that would give me another six months to perhaps finish up, uh, those orders mm. and then dismantle it. And, and then of course, you know, as these things go, um, Within a short period of time, there were some offers of uh, some some expressions of interest in terms of buy, perhaps buying the company. Sure, full circle, full circle, um, and you know uh, some uh, some strong interest. But of course, the economics of it just didn't work. And I think the uh, I, I think in some senses the danger of of it. I mean, you know, again, we come back to that the the global love of of the the already established uh, materials and, and those products and i think there's a there's great danger in trying to do something which doesn't fit that that uh that niche so yeah so in the end um you know although we came close i think there just wasn't any way to uh, to have it go further and so it eventually kind of not so much stopped as faded away yeah, which that's like sometimes that happens with bands that oh, happens yeah. where it's just kind of like it's just like, all right, it's I mean, you had a really good run, though. And I did. Um, yeah, you were very early in the boutique um, sort of sort of drum world, which I've, I've had the GMS drums guys yeah, on great guys and similar where I don't think people realize sometimes that um, like with pork pie and these like you, you, yeah. you guys were all boutique and small and doing it before it was like yeah. hip. You know, yeah, I um, think so. I think you're right, and I mean, I take some pride in that. And of course, Michael Clapham, and uh, you know, based on John Soprovich's little idea, I mean, he had he had the the vision to to start that, you know, and that was uh, in 1972, 73, in, in a in a place like Vancouver. We're not talking about L.A. Yeah, we're talking about a fairly, by most people's consideration, a fairly remote place. And who the hell starts a drum company in Vancouver? Well. Turns out three of us did. 
you know, myself and Ray Ayotte uh, yep. later on and uh, my old friend Ron Donette, you know. I was going to say, that's that's Ron, uh, yeah. Ron territory up Ron there too. Ron territory. He lives uh, just a few miles south of me and, uh, and, you know, and he's done admirably well. Again, he set out to do something unique. Yeah. You know, he started with uh, with his titanium. And I mean, that, that was his focus. He very wisely uh, carved out his own territory. That does some beautiful work. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, but it, it got to the point where I just, I didn't want to do it anymore. I, 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 and I, you know, it wasn't as simple as I quit, but then perhaps it shouldn't have been anyway. You can't just leave people, you know, I'm out of here. You know, you, yeah. you, you had this, uh, and even now, I mean, I still have some, uh, I still have remaining shells, not too many of them anymore, but, uh, every few weeks somebody comes along and wants to buy something for a do it yourself project. And I'm, I'm perfectly happy to see that go out the door. Eventually there, there will be nothing. And, yeah. and then we really will be not in business anymore. So, <laughs> but it's, it's yeah. so, it's so, it's so fascinating to me. And I'm so, uh, I'm so appreciative of the fact that I still hear daily through Facebook or Twitter or for email or however, from, from, from all of these players around the world that, that, you know, still have just such strong feelings for a strong attachment to the work that I did. I mean, you can't really ask for much more than that, can you? No, and that's the beauty. That's the there's a lot of negative stuff that can come with like Facebook and all this political stuff that happens. But the beauty of social media is is our community. Yes. Even zooming in further, there's the Tempest Facebook page yeah. um, where there's some really cool photos and just passionate people. Yeah. Um. So that's awesome. Well. Paul is going to hang out with us for a couple extra minutes. And per usual on the show, he's going to uh, we're going to record a Patreon bonus episode where I think the topic is going to be, you know, uh, you're not you don't just come out of the gate and you're a master at using like uh, carbon fiber. <laughs> no, and, you uh, certainly do not. <laughs> and fiberglass. So I want to hear kind of some of the the stories about you know, how you learned this. And I know it's like infamously itchy to use fiberglass and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, it can be, um, yeah. So uh, if you want to check out that bonus episode, which we're about to do, um, you can go to drumhistorypodcast.com and there's a Patreon link and you can join up there uh, for as little as two bucks a month and get that and goes higher from there for more perks. Um, but on that note, Paul, I have had a Magnum Tempus, which is Latin for a great time. <laughs> I like that. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. I also Googled that. I know no Latin, but uh, I, I, I yeah. see, I see a new line of t-shirts, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Magnum Tempest. Yeah. So thanks for coming on and sharing your knowledge. This is like, I, I am just, you know, beyond pumped for it. And thank you to Mr. Rude Estrada for getting this absolutely uh, yeah. idea out there. Yeah. And I've, I've really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm, you know, as I said earlier, I, I'm so incredibly appreciative even now that, uh, that anybody still cares uh, and uh, just great pride that I took in my work. And I'm just so pleased to know that uh, there are still so many out there who, uh, who play the drums. Yeah. That's all that matters, man. Take them really? out and play them, go and have fun with them. Exactly. But, and they're still holding up. Oh, and indestructible. They'll, uh, they'll outlive. Well, my, my sets will outlive me by a long shot. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Paul. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning.